even though we're growing by a hundred thousand people every every year in terms of the region, you know, it's largely built on the subsidies. We've really doubled down on sort of the twentieth century economy, and I think that's been more of the Texas miracle has been built on debt and the occasional uh, oil and gas boom. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I have as a guest from Dallas, Patrick Kennedy. Patrick lives car-free in Big D. Many of you know him on Twitter as WalkableDFW. You've seen his blog of the same name. I want to read your bio, Patrick, from D Magazine, because I think it's perfect. Patrick <laughs> Kennedy is a professional urban designer who believes in choice and opportunity in housing, neighborhoods, and transportation. And in using market forces to deliver great places, he loves cities and Dallas and therefore does this for free like a commie. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to a, a commie production, my friend. Patrick Kennedy, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Produced by Pravda, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, great to be here, Chuck. You know, you and I can oh. joke about that because we do have that market-based approach and, you know, you live in a land of commies, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's just like we're, uh, we're San Francisco here in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how, you know, when you get into it, how socialist some of the, uh, the policies actually are. But I want to start by talking a little bit and letting people know who you are. I ran into your mm -hmm. stuff, obviously, a few years ago when I started blogging. Your blog, Walkable DFW, I know sure. you've updated it now and it, it goes to a different place, but the idea was restoring Dallas Fort Worth area to its walkable past. Where'd you come up with such a lofty vision? <laughs> That's a great question. It's something that sort of morphed organically, I guess, just because there was a, a need to fill a void, not just, I think, in the, the dialogue, in the press, in the media and whatnot that I wanted to explore with the blog. But also, we could see it in my professional life, and what we do is design and develop walkable places, and every single one would have you know this huge success. They'd be ninety-seven percent leased up within you know a month. That there was this massive amount of pent-up demand for walkable living. We could see that, and we wanted to deliver more. And then I felt like I just wanted to expand the narrative and and expand the audience because everything we were hearing or reading was how Dallas is built entirely for the car, it always was, and it always will be. It was like, well, you know, if the market wants something else, why would we not at least challenge that in a, in a public discourse? And so we've been able to do that, I think, through, through all of our various efforts now that keep growing and growing and, and adding more people that, that get involved in all of our various, I guess, endeavors that we're involved in. But it wasn't this grand effort to begin with, and it never really was intended to. It was just, hey, let's let's talk about these issues, and you know, keep sort of pushing the narrative and the dialogue. And as long as we keep pushing it, and people come with us, it just sort of grew that way. 
there's no question that Texans love their cars almost more than any other state. Maybe California, maybe Well, I might challenge that. Go ahead. Challenge that. I don't necessarily believe they love it. It's more like Stockholm syndrome where (laughs) they, they love their cars because they're dependent upon them. You know, it's not like they necessarily love them. I mean, I like cool cars. There's a, there's a Tesla that gets parked near my office, like one of the, you know, sports car, the Roadster. And it's just amazing piece of engineering. So it's not that I hate cars, it's I hate the the compulsion that we have to own them, and particularly when we're dealing with falling wages and household incomes in Dallas, that it becomes more and more crippling. And that's what I'm really trying to address. Talk about how difficult or not difficult it is to live car-free in a place that has put so much effort into that Stockholm syndrome, getting people into their cars and getting them around in cars. The one thing that amazes me about Texas is the interchanges, how you'll stack them two, three, four, even five on top of each other. Oh, it's Uh, unbelievable. You put a lot of effort into auto infrastructure. What's it like to live in Dallas, in Fort Worth area, in the Hmm. place where you live without an automobile? Well, right now it's proven even more challenging because we've got Minnesota weather and a, a sheet of ice on all the streets. So you can imagine all, all of those high five mega billion dollar interchanges that you know are basically just like luge uh, ramps for, for cars. It's not terribly easy. Uh, I think something like three or four percent of, of the city of Dallas actually live in, in walkable neighborhoods. I've been fortunate enough to live in at least a semi-walkable place in the four or five different neighborhoods I've lived in in Dallas. But I'm also kind of weird that I'll put up with a lot of punishment and I'll I'll walk on places that a lot of people won't or probably shouldn't for their own safety. What's even more challenging is as we look at, say, like David Professor David Levinson's data about access to jobs, I took that data of his ranking of how many jobs are accessible within a certain distance of, of transit and charted them with census data of people that are poor and struggling. And struggling, according to the census, is people that are living paycheck to paycheck, essentially one paycheck away from being in poverty. And it turns out there is a correlation, I mean, a pretty strong one between how accessible jobs are without a car via transit and the percentage of the population that are struggling. And we see that the areas that look worst in his data, the, the Detroits, the Dallases, the Clevelands are showing up as the same with the highest percentages of people struggling. I've been lucky enough that I've been able to have you know stable job and career, but you know it's not about me. It's always about what's it like for the balance of the population and everybody else because when everybody else is succeeding, then the areas then the city starts succeeding and doing better. Texas is this massive, massive state. I was there last week. For a couple of speaking engagements, I wound up driving from the DFW airport to Houston. And on the map, that doesn't look like that far. And it is a, oh my gosh, it's such a long ways. You know, we'll probably be the first ones to have high-speed rail between Dallas and Houston. Isn't that uh, isn't that'll, that that'll shorten the distance, I think. Isn't that incredible? And all completely privately funded too, right? If it happens, that's the way. I mean, I think there'll be essentially some in-kind right-of-way donations and whatnot that'll that'll help make it go because they're probably going to run it along some of the highways. But Dallas and Houston are the the perfect case studies for for high-speed rail because it's the the exact distance you want, uh, about 200 miles. They're two very large economies with that are highly interdependent, and it's flat and straight between the two. I think Texas has some of the worst 
development that I've seen in the country. But I want to give you a chance to talk about the other side of the equation, because I have found in Houston, in Waco, in Dallas, in Austin, in San Antonio, some of the best development in the country. Yeah, it's amazing. In DFW, and we're, we're having CNU here in a couple of months, we probably have some of the, I would have to say, the most examples of at least efforts towards doing walkable developments. But, you know, not all of them have been so successful. <laughs> there are two transportation projects I want to chat with you about sure. that I think are case studies or, or models that the rest of the country is now in many ways looking at the way Dallas handles these two projects. The first one's Highway 345, an mm-hmm. elevated freeway that's falling apart. Can you just give us some history on this project and why now today it's kind of the center of the conversation there? Sure. Uh, 345 is an aging elevated highway that's that was built in the early 70s. It was never really on the original highway plans for Dallas, but because of the way 45 and 75 came to downtown, they actually scaled down to a surface street. People got tired of waiting at, at the traffic light at a certain intersection, so they decided, you know what, let's just plow a highway through here. And it ended up basically ripping apart the epicenter of uh, jazz and blues culture in Texas, which is the Deep Ellum neighborhood. It ran right over what used to be the Harlem Theater, where uh, Lead Belly and Blind Lemon used to play and other jazz and blues greats. And this was really the heart of not only jazz and blues culture, but it was really the, the mixing pot and the center of Dallas life and vitality, too. And it ended up dividing the two neighborhoods of downtown and Deep Ellum. And when I first moved to Dallas, sight unseen, I had never been to Texas in my life. Um, this was 12, 13 years ago, back in 2002. No kidding. Uh, right out of school. Was it for a job? Yeah, it was for a job because I came here to work for uh, RTKL, and I wanted to go into the warm weather because I was tired of this cold <laughs> that we're experiencing <laughs> right now. And I wanted to go to the, the most sprawling place I could find, and it just turns out that the, the place that hired me was working on places like uh, Addison Circle and Legacy Town Center, and I was like, that's exactly the kind of stuff I want to do. So it just it really was fortunate on my part. When I moved here, I would end up walking to work every single day where all, my office was downtown, and I'd walk from Deep Ellum to downtown under that highway. And every single day, I would just imagine, you know, visualize what else could this be? And it was basically a 15-minute walk through vacant land, vacant buildings, derelict properties, boarded-up warehouses, and service parking lots. And that was my walk the entire way. And so years later then, you know, always sort of noodling on it, always following what was going on in other cities with highways, and always thinking about it. And then the city underwent a downtown plan in around 2008 or 2009 or so. And in that plan, it explicitly said the downtown loop of freeways is a problem, but there's nothing we can do about that. And I, I, I tend to get my hackles up whenever people you know, edit themselves ahead of time. And it's it's like, why value engineer before you even start getting to that point? Right. You know, if you're dealing with the construction. So at least start putting out the ideas and try to push the push the narrative. So a friend and I, he's a developer and I'm an urban planner, of course. And so we were talking about it and just saying, well, let's just explore this and let's see where it goes. And we started looking around at the, the sort of four highway segments around downtown and 345 made the most sense. And this is the one to the east side of, of downtown because there were already plans in the works for the other three 
Clyde Warren Park, the, the famous deck park over Woodall Rogers Highway was under construction. And it turned out that that 345 was, was in the worst shape structurally. And Textile had been working on it for about 10 years, just keeping uh, the thing standing. And But there was no talk about it whatsoever. So we decided, hey, let's get out in front of this thing before Textile comes a-calling to say they're going to spend what we've learned now is about $240 million to keep the thing standing for another 20 years. Uh, let's get out in front of it and think about it in a different way with different priorities. You know, what what are the potentials for development, for economic development, for jobs and housing? How do we deliver more housing where we need it in enough critical mass in a large enough area that we can actually make a difference and also deliver affordable housing near jobs and near transit because we've got a, a severe issue with how we are able to do that as well. And it turned out like all these pieces just seemed to align. And we, we did a study and it was really, you know, it wasn't a really fully worked out plan because who has time for that when you're just doing this on the side? It was just, hey, let's remove the highway, restitch the grid. What kind of area does that leave us for redevelopment? And we ran it through basically a pro forma and a build out scenario and found it would be worth about $4 billion in private investment. It would add more than $100 million a year in property tax revenue for the city. From that initial study, we've ended up taking that to very high-level finance people, and they vouch for those numbers. And even our most aggressive numbers might be lower than their conservative numbers, but we're also in a very hot real estate market right now. And the odd thing is about 345 is that it sort of is the bridge between Uptown and South Dallas. And Uptown is an area that from 1990 to today has added about $4 billion in investment and used to be the worst area in the city. And now it's some of the most expensive real estate in the state. And then you go two miles to the south, to South Dallas, and there's land that you could probably buy for a penny. And it looks like Detroit. Most of the sites have been cleared. It's large swaths of, of vacant land. And they're literally a mile or two apart and, and linked by 345. And this became our way of saying, how can we steer large amounts of investment, more job opportunities and amenities towards the southern sector and start halting the or at least reversing some of the job sprawl and housing sprawl and investment that keeps leaking further and further to the north. I guess that began about five years ago and I started talking to whoever would listen to me really and then started talking to the neighborhood groups in the area and the sort of word spread around and I've probably given now about 100 presentations on it. And it has grown to the point where we've now founded a, a political action committee, which I think has more than 300,000 uh, raised for it for the upcoming May elections, where we have six of 14 council seats are open, where the existing uh, incumbent has been term limited. So this is a huge opportunity where we're going to completely overhaul city council in a way that not only is it about 345 or the Trinity Toll Road, but it's just about thinking more progressively about every issue. You know, So I think that's why we've been able to reach such a large audience and raise so much money and generate so much interest in this idea. Okay. I want to back up for a sec because I know that people listening to this, their heads are spinning Good because you basically just took us on a journey from you. A 12-year journey. <laughs> yeah. You walking underneath a elevated highway through desolation to now having a $300,000 you know, funded political action committee steering change. Yep. That was not something that happened overnight. Maybe you should talk about the presentations that you gave 
and mm-hmm. showing up at these neighborhood groups. I'm guessing there were times when there were two people there to listen and five people. What is it like to tell this story over and over and over again in those early years when maybe you didn't know if it would ever amount to anything? Oh, wow. That's, that's an interesting question because it's something I never really doubted it intellectually. So I've always believed in it. And I guess that's kept me going forward. And I guess the success of those, the size of the groups growing every single time and the, the amount of converts where just speaking to one person for a half an hour and I can see them go through, you know, all five stages of grief where at first they're like, you are crazy. And then by the <laughs> end, they're like, you know what, that kind of makes some sense. And then they start telling other people and, it, and it's been word of mouth. that has been almost more successful than anything is uh, friends telling friends and people passing the word through people they trust. And that's been almost more successful than, than my presentations. But I guess in mind, the way I keep it interesting, having given so many of them now is that I never give the same one twice. That's for my own value because I, I would get bored doing it that way. So I also like to tailor the information, the content and the message because it's such a a big topic that touches on so many things that I try to really drill down on what I think the audience is going to care most about. And that changes for every single neighborhood, every single, uh, whether it's a business group, a neighborhood or, or anything else. So it's, it's really all about tailoring the message. When you throwing out numbers like $4 billion in new investment, $100 million in new tax revenue, these are not insignificant numbers. What's the response been like at City Hall? And how has that kind of changed over time, if, if at all? The size and scale of those numbers has allowed us to reach the business community. And we had to focus on economic development because that's just how things get done here in Dallas and in Texas in general. Let's make the business case and then everything else falls from there. And I think that's why we've been so successful is sort of following that that mindset. City Hall doesn't think or speak with with one mindset. So it, we would have to parse how City Hall thinks about it, that there are many people individually throughout City Hall that, that really get it. But, you know, they're the staffers that have to speak to me privately and, and off the record. There are several city council people that get it, but it's still a minority. And that's why we want to go from, say, four supporters of the 15, which includes the mayor and it's a weak mayor system, to eight, nine, or 10. But it's something that, that's happening because we've seen the city council and sort of the progressive voices on city council grow from one to two to four in the last you know six years or so. You know, There's no one voice at, at City Hall, but I think from the higher level, uh, staff and director level, they do see the potential for that economic development, but they can't do do anything without a city council directive. And some people might say, well, what does city council matter on an interstate highway? Well, TxDOT tells us they want to do whatever the city wants, but they want the city and the county and all the politics out of the way. So everybody is on the same page and pushing in the same direction because they don't want to get involved in the politics. And it, it ends up pushing any city or municipality down the ranks because everybody's playing hungry, hungry hippo trying to get the the remaining TxDOT budget for new construction or repairs or whatever is left outside of debt service. (laughs) A shrinking amount. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. So who is wanting to put this 
highway back or who would be supporting patching this thing up or keeping the elevated highway there? Where's the pockets of support for that? Uh, there's a few, one of which is inertia, just it's there. So keep it up. And that's where TxDOT mid-level people fill that void where it's just, well, they're just going to do what they're going to do. And it becomes a safety issue for them because the thing is decaying. From my standpoint, you know, I, I tend to think about safety in a more holistic way that if there's 3,500 Texans being killed on the road every single year from collisions, I don't see any that are killed by falling bridges just yet. Oh, and, you know, that would be a tragedy if it were to happen and hopefully it never happens. But, you know, that's not going to happen if you just take down the road altogether and actually build safer, more walkable, more vibrant, productive cities. And then there's a lot of the, the, South Dallas uh, political leaders that are that are currently in power support it, and I think the the mayor is sort of on the fence on 345. But this also transitions to the Trinity, where the people that support building the Trinity Toll Road and the people that support keeping 345 think that those highways are necessary to get the people that live in the south which is predominantly poor and how do they get to the jobs in the north which are getting increasingly further away and getting further and further north but that's how we've been approaching things for you know 50 years and that's what has led to the decay of south dallas and so we're saying no we have to reverse that and not say how do the poor spend a quarter or a half of their income just to make a paycheck how do we bring jobs and opportunity closer to them? Because you start looking into more detail in the South Dallas, the area compared to Detroit, uh, it's lost population from like 70,000 to 20,000. Median incomes have dropped from 35 or 40,000 to 10 to 20. Unemployment's as high as 68% in some areas. Basically, the middle class vanished in the last 30, 40 years in that area, and they, they pulled the stepladder out of poverty with them because the middle class demands, you know, services and amenities and whatnot near them. And those are the sort of the starter jobs, but they're all gone. And so we're saying, let's not figure out how to make people drive more. How do we get people to drive less and get to more jobs? Which brings me back to, to Levinson's point about accessibility of jobs. There's no short term, easy fixes to this systemic impoverishment of large swaths of the city. And I feel like the people that support keeping 345 and building the toll road think that, you know, if we just spend the $1.8 billion on the toll road and the $240 million to repair 345, everything will be hunky-dory. And uh, I could not disagree more. It does seem like in the 50s and 60s, we had a vision for how we would create prosperity for everyone. And when we started to do it, we saw the immediate results maybe without contemplating fully the long-term impact, or at least we were able to justify some of the short-term negative impacts with this long-term vision. I mean, I realize we're sitting here in 2015 with a different vision, you and me and a lot of people who think like us, a different vision for how we create prosperity for more people, including people who have historically been more impoverished and disadvantaged. Are we making the same argument just in a different way that essentially there's going to be a little bit of transition here, but we over time are going to create something better? Or are we saying something different than what people might have said 50, 60 years ago? Who are well, we talking about from 50, 60 years? Are we talking about the 
the Moses side or the Jane Jacobs side of a 50, 60 years ago conversation? I think that's a good... It's really the same conversation. It is. Let me... Let me actually expand on that. I think it it gets down to that there's been a a large generational shift. And I think it gets down to the way we educate anymore. And it's no longer this sort of streamlined, mechanistic engineering solutions of one problem, one solution. And, you know, who knows about the the spinoff effects, but it's more uh, systemic. And I think that's because complexity science and complexity theory has begun to sort of invade all of our academia to a point where everybody just inherently gets it now, you know, in a way that, that we wouldn't have thought more holistically in the past. I love you. I mean, that was exactly what I was trying to get at. You talk about the mid-level like tech stop people who there's a certain amount of inertia in the system and this is what we do and this is how we build it. But you're really advocating for a more complex, nuanced, almost difficult approach at the ground level. Are people responding to that more intuitively now today than maybe the have nail, need hammer, let's build a highway kind of mentality of, of a past generation? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's also one that's been, the timing has been fortuitous just because this is where you, you sort of emerged in your, your narrative nationally is because we simply can't afford to build this way. And it's allowed us to reach the business community that likes the idea of a large scale development near downtown and the potential to make money. We've been able to reach the fiscal conservatives that say, you know what, we can't keep running up the debt ceiling on TxDOT. And we've, we've also reached sort of the, the, the yuppie liberal urbanists, which I think I feel like I can either walk the line between all of those or, balance between them and speak their language just because, you know, as long as you know you stay non-ideological, you can do it that way. One of the columns I read about you recently called you one of the cool kids. So I, I, I took <laughs> that as a compliment. <laughs> How does the... Yeah, I don't know if they meant it that way. <laughs> no, I don't think they did, but I would well, like to Don't be go into the comment sections and you'll see that I get called every name in the book. <laughs> Yeah, I'm used to that too. I want to explore a little bit how the MPO and the way the federal funding comes into the city of Dallas or the Dallas region, how that impacts some of the priorities. I don't know if you have an opinion on that or not, or have experience with that, but I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about the MPOs. Yeah, I've got to be careful parsing my words there, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure what I want to say there. Am, um, I, am I asking you to hang yourself a little bit? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, because there's quite a debate here in Dallas, and I think I've helped stir it up, that for so long we've been championing this idea of regionalism. And I guess that's been one of the key impetuses for something that drives me so crazy, is how the city of Dallas can champion this notion of regionalism while it's got the highest rate of poverty for children under 18. You know, 90% of the kids in, in the school district are, are poor. It's like, wait a second. Let's start thinking about not just regionalism with this sort of blind definition of that we've accepted it as orthodoxy and we just need to champion it. Let's actually qualitatively think about it and quantitatively as well and say, how can we make this work better for all of us? Because ultimately, I, I can't help but think that at some point in time, if the city continues on its current trajectory, that that's going to really start having impacts on the outer suburbs 
And a lot of the outer suburbs are probably going to have a lot of pain as their infrastructure begins to age, too, because even though we're growing by 100,000 people every, every year in terms of the region, you know, it's largely built on the subsidies. We've really doubled down on sort of the, the 20th century economy, and I think that's been more the Texas miracle has been built on debt and the occasional oil and gas boom more than anything else. And I guess partially due to some diversification of the economy, some reurbanization, I think we've benefited from being about 20 years behind the cycle of Detroit, where you know Detroit sort of bottomed out before this new interest in moving back to cities where if it wasn't for walkable neighborhoods and people moving back into places like uptown Dallas, the city of Dallas probably would have lost population for the first time in its history between 2000 and 2010 census. It only gained eight or 9,000 people, I think, which was the least it's, it's grown since 1880 when it was only 10,000 people. So people are moving back to these small pockets, these, these tiny sub-markets throughout this larger region. Shouldn't we try to create more of these? And isn't this the way that uh, we can revitalize and repopulate and continue to diversify our economy rather than this sort of dumbed-down notion of build a highway, get a Chuck E. Cheese and a, and a big box store out towards Oklahoma? You know, that's not really doing much good for anybody. And I think we're starting to see this interesting alliance of forces between the rural Tea Party conservatives backlash against new toll roads through uh, greenfields that we're fighting the same fights here in the city, too, but entirely different <laughs> uh, demographic that's doing it. But, you know, I tell you what, that when 1,500 angry people show up out in uh, Wiley, Texas or Rockwall or wherever it is, you know, we, we'd be lucky to get 1,500 people to uh, some kind of free event and at the American Airlines Center in Dallas. We can't get that kind of political participation in Dallas to save our lives. Right, right. Let me give you an example from another city. I want you to react to it and tell me if this resonates with you in Texas. I've done a lot of work in Memphis, Tennessee, which is a, a great city, but a city that has some neighborhoods very close to the center of the city that are struggling. I pointed out sometimes that a viable business model in some of these neighborhoods is to take a car, drive to Walmart, come back with rolls of toilet paper and other essentials in the trunk and then sell them out of your trunk. Because there isn't any place to buy those kind of things in the neighborhood. These are places that are deeply, deeply impoverished. Yeah, and local entrepreneurs see that and do that. Exact exactly, thing. exactly. When we look at those neighborhoods, and let's, let's just take a random five-acre cut out of one of those neighborhoods, and we compare the tax revenue that the city gets from one of those neighborhoods to the tax revenue the city gets from the shiny new neighborhood out on the edge, let's take a, a five acre chunk of that neighborhood. That impoverished neighborhood is paying five, 10 times the amount of tax revenue than what you're getting in the same land out on the edge. Now, when we look at the MPO in Memphis, the Metropolitan Planning Organization, the one that takes the federal gas tax dollars and essentially distributes them or identifies projects that are high priority where these need to go. And we overlay that on a map of where these impoverished neighborhoods and the wealthy neighborhoods are. What we find is that all of the MPO money is going way out on the edge 
to improve commute time, theoretically, and the neighborhoods where you're actually getting a lot of tax return and where a lot of impoverished people live is getting none of that federal money. That's Memphis, Tennessee. And in reacting to that, say if you sense the same kind of thing going on where you live. That's interesting. And I, I would love to see that. And I would like to see that applied to, to DFW. Maybe that's a homework assignment for me to do. My sense would be that, yeah, the, the greatest proportion probably continues to go to the edge just because so much of the infrastructure is still so new that very little of it, you know, 345 is really the first thing where it's now aged and falling apart and needs to be rebuilt. So the rest of it is going to brand new highways on Greenfield. So the, the vast proportion does go out to the edge. But I don't think there's really a shortage then of of this desire to to put money into some of those impoverished areas too. It's just in all the wrong ways. And it really becomes about applying it in the same way that they're doing it out on the edge, which is uh, widening roads, building these sort of awful schools and community centers and libraries or whatnot that look like prison compounds rather than, you know, something you'd be proud to be a part of that are, you know, walkable and part and, and embedded within their neighborhoods it really just ends up tearing apart neighborhoods more than we really should be. And, and on the flip side of that, I'm sure you've, you've visited some places and when you've been to Dallas, like Bishop arts or, or lower Greenville, or even uh, say like state Thomas, which is the, the historic part of, Uptown, which has led to most of Uptown's revival, or even Main Street in downtown Dallas, every single one of those started, or the revitalization started with uh, road diets, or scaling down of the roads, or in State Thomas's case, it was fighting to preserve the historic street grid while the city wanted to widen all of the streets. And the developers said, no, 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 we, we like this street grid exactly how it is. Let's just build this way. And all of them, even though, like, say, uh, Lower Greenville or Bishop Arts, these were areas that were in various stages of decay, and the city injected a million or a million five into uh, narrowing, calming the streets, you know, beautification, that kind of stuff, road diets. And the areas have come back to life. They've led to, in Bishop Arts area, which I've recently now renovated a house and moved down to, that the property values in the last 15 years have increased nearly 400%. Significant increases in, in property tax value and, and all of the above just by these targeted, small-scale tactical interventions, the kind of thing that Monty Anderson is always talking about. Have you had him on yet? Monty keynoted our national gathering last fall. I, I've yet oh, to have him on right. the podcast. I think we're scheduling that for CNU, actually. Great. Yeah. It's the way in which we spend that money and yet you know you're the champion of, of this not how do we get more money but how do we do it better the way you describe that though the 400 percent increase in property values just reminded me of how you reacted personally to that joe cartwright interview on gentrification that we put out a couple of weeks ago why did you react so strongly the way you did i mean you you told people they have to listen to, <laughs> to that one podcast <laughs> it's mandatory it's mandatory yeah. right right if you want respect from patrick kennedy listen to this podcast what was it about that that resonated so strongly with you the word gentrification has always driven me crazy because it's one of those words that has lost any kind of meaning you know anybody can fill it with their own personal definition and it gets used in a very negative way, especially here locally, and I'm sure it's the same in other places where 
you're trying to bring investment and the status quo will always use this as sort of this, this hammer, you know, gentrification, fear of gentrification. It's how do we start digging deeper into what that means? Because one person's gentrification is, you know, we're going to displace everybody and put up a Walmart and another person's might mean, well, that's investment. And we're seeing that exactly play out in the South Dallas area where I'm working with a lot of neighborhood leaders who are fed up with that argument and the status quo. And they've just seen this downward cycle for 40 years. And they, they say, you know what? We want that investment. We want those jobs and the shopping and everything that comes with it. You know, just don't bulldoze everybody that's here and all of our, you know, the community that still exists as much as it can, even in such a fractured way that it, that it currently does. You know, how do we maintain the culture and make it participatory investment? And that leads into a lot of things like how do we have entrepreneurial training and, and programs to help investment in existing properties and stuff like that. But I think this gets deeper to my, my, my general theory of urbanism that the most important infrastructure and connectivity is first the invisible interconnectivity, if that's, if I can coin a phrase or a term, yeah. that it's about building the, building the networks of people and building that sort of invisible connections of community. And then we can start following up with sort of the physical interventions to make those function better that we need to be focusing on rather than this dumbed down, meaningless argument over what is gentrification. Well, I have an idea for one of the things that we can do to create jobs, the Trinity Parkway. <laughs> it sounds like a, a great classic kind of project. We connect neighborhoods with a six lane toll road through the middle of the city I read somewhere that the city council at one point supported this 14 to one, although they said we, we should be using context sensitive design. What is this project and is it dead or not? It is not dead. It may be dying, but it's hard to say. It's such a fascinating case study in so many ways that you have to be sort of intrigued by all the, all the various uh, intricacies of it to not be horrified by everything that's going on because its basic reason for existence is building another highway parallel to a highway because of problems with the existing highway. It, it <laughs> so, feels it feels like, like the ghost of Robert Moses like haunting, you know, the area or something like that. Yeah, and there I mean there's so many problems with it. From one, it goes through a park or what's intended to be a park and our former senator K Bailey Hutchinson actually had a writer attached to a federal bill, which means that particular project in Dallas is exempt from uh, the 4F section of the environmental uh, impact assessment, which means it's allowed to go through parks and the federal review can't say anything about being in through a park right. or natural land. Which makes sense because, <laughs> so, you know, those environmental rules are not meant to apply to natural green space, right? Yeah, to the environment. It's right. Everything but the environment, right? <laughs> why, why would we have environmental rules deal with the environment? They're meant to, you know, deal with other things. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? Right. And they, then we get into the that same idea before of how do we link uh, housing to jobs, where I think something like 41% of residents in Dallas County live in the South, but something like only 17% of the jobs are in the South and only about 15% of the tax base are in the South. 
And so in that sort of 20th century mindset, it's, well, you build a highway to link those two things and voila, everything is done. Where I think now the understanding is, or the thought process is, well, let's be smarter about land use in general and how do we use the market to fix those problems, those land use inefficiencies rather than, you know, a couple billion dollars, which we don't have. And that's the only reason for the tolls. You know, the tolls are not a reason for reducing congestion because they need the traffic counts to make the thing work, um, which I would actually agree with tolling existing highways, but I don't as a means of finance, which makes the whole thing uh, sort of implode. If you charge what you need to actually pay for it, nobody will use it. Yeah, you won't have the tra- traffic and you, it won't pay for itself. So it's, it's a crazy form of finance. And that's why I think toll roads basically are, are you know, creating a Pagovian tax for something that you need to have a certain amount of demand. And then reducing the demand through that effective tax is a horrible way to do business. It's brilliant economics. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's economics <laughs> that only I don't mean to be like anti-government because I'm not. But it's, it's a form of like market mechanism that only a centralized state could come up with in a way. We've built this. You have to use it. The more we charge you, the less you're going to use it. And the, then the more we're going to have to charge you at some point, you know, we're just going to have to. Yeah, in some other way. Right? First we're going to have to find that right. more money some other way. Exactly. Right. And exactly. I think the toll road in, in Austin or outside of Austin that's on the verge of default is getting, you know, a hundred million or whatnot a year injections into it to keep the thing afloat yeah, and not and, defaulting. And nobody sits back and says, this is a bad investment. I mean, if you're a business, I don't think government should be run like a business, but I think that government can use market principles to get good feedback. If the feedback you're getting is that at the price you need to make this thing pay, people don't value it that much. That's a pretty strong feedback. Let me give you a case study for that kind of feedback and how the market is working to sort of solve that problem for us in a way that the toll road is intended to relieve congestion on Stemmons Corridor, which is Highway uh, 35 East, and to deliver workers to the Stemmons Business Corridor, where there's currently 117,000 jobs, 51% of which make under 40,000, and they're all driving for the most part. So you've got people making under 40,000, you know, de- car dependent, and only about 13,000 residents in that area. But we also have in that area... The original Trinity River, uh, which they call the Trinity Strand, which they've now built a trail system along it, which is beautiful. And it also would be along the, the current Trinity Channel uh, riverfront, which is supposed to be a park. And now in that area, which, was, which is called the Design District and the Trinity Strand Trail area, there's been about five or six new high-rise, mid-rise, mixed-use developments have been infilling in this sort of warehouse district. And if we could actually continue that, we could easily add uh, about 40,000 new people in that area, workers that want to work closer to the, the huge medical district that's in the area that you know, are looking for to, one, live closer to where they work. You know, the market is already doing that. And that would be like five or six billion dollars in investment, in private investment, adding tax base, just rethinking this area instead of being a lot of the uh, low intensity warehousing and logistics stuff that is in highly valuable land right now. How do we flip that equation and encourage more of that intensification of the land use to deliver more housing near those jobs 
and then have a strategy to shift all those low intensity warehousing businesses outside the city to say I-20 or some of the logistics hubs that we're, we're building outside the city, which frankly belong outside the city because the core just gets too congested for that kind of stuff. This all just sounds too complicated, though. I mean, you're, it sounds way easier to just borrow a billion and a half dollars and put in a highway, you know? Well, it is, yeah. It is easier, and it's easier politically to, to get that through, and, and that's the whole point of having these conversations is, you know what, it's not, it's not easy. It's not going to be easy. But the easy solution is the, the, you know, the easy road into uh, insolvency and bankruptcy. How is TxDOT being essentially broke? I don't say that flippantly. You know, you guys just approved in Texas robbing your rainy day fund now on an ongoing basis to give TxDOT like a tenth of the money they said they were short. I don't get that strategy. But how does the financial woes of TxDOT play into projects like the Trinity Toll Road? Well, the TxDOT, uh, at least officially, has zero interest in the Trinity Toll Road. So they, they have said that they're not going to participate in it financially at all. One, because I, I don't think they necessarily believe in it. Two, because of the politically contentious uh, nature of it. And at least from, from that rainy day fund, they're not allowed to use rainy day money on any kind of tolled projects. So that helps in our situation, at least um, focused on the Trinity Toll Road. You know, they're apparently at their debt limit, uh, so they can't take on more debt. But every number I hear, it seems to get higher. And maybe it's only rising because of the deferred maintenance that we can't afford when half the budget goes to, to debt service. But I think in terms of uh, say like 345, we've been able to touch a nerve at a higher level at TxDOT2 because they are seeing, you know, they're the ones that have to manage the books, not the the people on the ground that are fixing the problems or building the, the roads and whatnot. They're seeing, hey, you know what, we can't continue this way. And we are lucky enough to have a commissioner, one of the five Texas transportation commissioners that oversee TxDOT in our, our local area. His name is Victor Vandergriff, who has been more than open with having a dialogue with us and saying, okay, let's just get everybody in a room, talk this out, and get on the same page. And so he's actually leading a, a study about what to do with all of the highways, whether it's taking down 345, whether it's burying 30, where we want to actually relocate 30 around South Dallas to sort of bring South Dallas into the core, or potentially even what to do with Trinity Toll Road or 35. He is now leading a study that's full of good, complex thinkers that are going to look at all those highway options and compare apples to apples. What are the costs, benefits, trade-offs of each of those so we can get on the same page and have a dialogue about uh, what is best for our city long term? And so I think that TxDOT getting to this point financially has helped sort of shake that conversation loose and get it, get it moving forward. And so we're lucky to have uh, some leadership that sees that. All right. We got a couple minutes left. I don't want to end this podcast without having people get a little bit of sense of the way you've gone about advocating for things. I look at you and I see a Yankee come down to Texas. You're in a, a new place. You don't have a lot of connections. You're working professionally. 
And it's a situation that a lot of people find themselves in who look around and say, I, I want to make change. I want to make this place better. But what in the world do I do? You started writing a blog. I want to focus on that first, the blog, your Twitter feed, the connections you made there. And I want to see if you have any insights on that you can share with people on getting started blogging and sharing a different vision, in your case, a radically different vision for a place and what that experience is like. Well, first of all, it has to be a passion project because I think that's the only way the diligence comes from, which is probably the first and foremost requirement. And I think you're probably better than, than anybody at, at diligently providing content at certain times and certain days which I'm not an organized enough person to ever do that. It's just, I guess I've produced so much and written so much just because it's something I have to find an outlet and a place for, or else it'll you know either disappear or you know just clog my brain and I have to get it out. And actually working it out on the Twitter feed and the blog, and I see the Twitter feed as sort of the first draft of thoughts and ideas and the blog is sort of the second draft. And then eventually maybe there's a third, fourth or fifth draft where I'm, I'm able to incorporate some of that stuff into what I do professionally. So to me, it's always a process and it's more about for me, you know, just working out ideas and things that I want to better understand than it is really for any other reason. But then in terms of, I guess, writing for an audience and I, I never really like writing for an audience because then I feel like I get writer's block if I feel like people are going to read <laughs> what I'm writing. Amen. But I, I never wanted to dumb anything down. And I find that the writing about these kind of things can either be too esoteric and theoretical that, or just plain boring um, that nobody wants to read or it's too dumbed down that people don't get enough out of it and don't, they're not growing intellectually or their own mindset of, of how they think about cities. So I've always wanted to sort of jump back and forth between what I would consider pushing the envelope in terms uh, of the way to think about cities and understand cities, whether it's uh, theory or research, but then hop back to sort of a uh, joking level or a snarky level to find some level of engagement, you know, to, to reach uh, what other people may see in their daily life and how ridiculous some of what we see in terms of our built environment is and use that as sort of the hook that people can identify with and then drag them along into some higher level understanding about the world around them. And I don't know if that's the answer, but I think I can rationalize some growth in my audience and my reach from that. I feel the same experience. I mean, in writing, you have all these thoughts in your head and you're trying to get them out as a way to understand them. We've reached a point where the content used to be three days a week and now it's five days a week and now it's multiple times a day. It's forced me at times to write things that are shorter, more general, kind of watered down in a sense, if you want to put it that way. But yeah. it still leaves room for those intellectually challenging things where you can't just read it in 30 seconds and hopefully it'll stay with you for a while. Too. Yeah. And there's, there's some value to the echo chamber and repeating yourself. And I've perhaps naively always rejected that, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you have to almost because you have to keep repeating yourself over and over again until people start to, you know, get it. And maybe it takes 
uh, five or ten or a hundred times until somebody hears the same thing, and all of a sudden it's it's you know digestible. So it, there's a combination of I think externally needing to repeat yourself while internally always trying to push your own boundaries. How do you go from writing and engaging with people online to building a movement of people willing to show up and do something? And maybe they go together and maybe you did the one first and then the blog. I I don't know. But you have a, a sense now the ability to have a like a funeral for the Trinity toll road. Right. And you have, you know, people show up. I saw pictures all over the place. It was a big media event and you had a bunch of people participate. What's that crossover from, you know, if we want to say snarky blogger or intellectual blogger to, uh, you know, someone who's actually leading some change. I think they're, they're highly interconnected. And I think there's a lesson there between the, the link between sort of the digital world and the physical world, not just in these particular efforts, but in, but in general, I can't tell you how many friends and people and colleagues that I've met through Twitter that I wouldn't have met any other way. It's just somebody started following me because they were in, they were interested in the same kind of things I was talking about, and they were like, "Hey, let's have a beer and talk sometime and meet sometime." Because I, there's still this you know underlying uh, human need for a more personal. Con- Connection, you know, the, the, the fears of the dystopia that the internet would bring never really came true, just because you know people are still people, and we found ways to make the digital world enhance our physical world, and so I think that's been the biggest benefit to this whole movement was really the the networks that Twitter builds and the way you can grow a movement that way, but it doesn't translate to anything unless you're meeting those people one on one personally and getting to know them, you know, all of a sudden then you've got lieutenants that are carrying the same message and growing that movement in in the physical world as well. What's the best place for people to read you today? I I know your site, Car Free and Big D, and then the walkabledfw.com, both forward now to D Magazine. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with D Magazine. Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, it all started as Car Free and Big D which was an experiment in getting rid of a car. And in full disclosure, I'm no longer living uh, entirely car-free. My girlfriend and I share one car. but So we're car-light, not car-free anymore. <laughs> it's just I've got so many meetings during the day that I can't possibly uh, do it anymore. I wish I could, but such is life in, in Dallas. And then it evolved to walkable DFW when I wanted to start reaching a broader audience. And it's not just about my experience living with a car, but just greater ideas on urbanism and economics and whatnot. And at that point, writers from the various local media outlets had found me in some form or fashion, uh, whether I was commenting on certain issues that they were writing on. And so they would meet with me and do stories on me and whatnot. And then eventually D Magazine asked me to be a columnist for them. And so in their print edition, I was I wrote a monthly column for about 18 months. And so I've come to know everybody at D Magazine, and eventually they, they asked me, hey, do you just want to roll your blog into our network and their family of blogs? And I was like, okay, sure, why not? Yeah, so that's been sort of a leap of faith as well. There's no, I'm not sure there was a great reason for me to do that, but it's now called Street Smart. And I guess what I'm most excited about the potential is that a lot of people come to me and say, oh, how do I get started? How do I write about this kind of thing or that kind of thing? And I say, well, just write on Street Smart. And so 
I basically am trying to employ as a large a group of people to provide the content. One, so it's not always me. Two, it's a diversity of voices. And three, as part of that diversity, to give a lot of other people a start and a voice and a, and a medium for spreading the whatever kind of message that they want, as long as it's within the same focus of, of what Street Smart is about, which is a smarter, better way of thinking about infrastructure, our cities, and urban economies. If our listeners want to meet Patrick Kennedy, I know you're going to be at CNU in Dallas. I know you've been working hard on that, along with a lot of other people who are going to make that a great time. We're going to be able to see some of these projects that we've talked about today, get into the guts of some of them, have some deeper discussions. I can't wait. I think CNU this year is going to be a blast. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a ton of fun. I've taken up a lot of your time. I just want to say, you know, you are one of the people that I have learned a ton from and modeled a lot of the most genius people steal things right from others. And I found myself stealing a ton from you. And I just want to say, you know, you're and vice versa. Well, thank you. You're one of my blogging heroes. One of my, uh, the people I most admire. And it's, it's really a great opportunity to be able to chat with you. Thanks so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Let's plan to get together in Dallas. I can't wait. Yes, over beers this time. This is a little early for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'll try not to bring snow and ice when I come, although it's happened a couple times when I've been down there. Uh, Better not. In April, May, it should be uh, 75 or 80 and sunny every day. I can't wait. Thanks for listening, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Let's do it. Here we go. All right, here we go. What is the state nickname of Texas? The Lone Star State. Who is the current governor of Texas? Rick Perry. The city of Dallas was founded by whom? Uh, J.R. Ewing. Name the largest dome in Texas. Dr. Phil. What is the leading cause of heart attacks in Texas? Tony Romo. What's over yonder? Everything that's not under yonder. Which two foreign countries does Texas border? Mexico and the United States.